Gospel chapter 8. Sunday morning through the Bible, and, uh, or not through the Bible, but through the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, I just love it because you, you, you hit things that one after another that you might otherwise not camp on and, or things that uh, you do want to camp on. But since you're going right through the scriptures, people can't accuse you of aiming at them. And, uh, and then you hit it, everything in just the right proportion that it's recorded in the scriptures. So here we go. We'll pick it up in verse 12 for what we'll look at this morning. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 12. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I am from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For, if I, am not, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. And it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. And then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and, and let's make specific notice here of verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? And then he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please the Father. And as he spoke these words, many in that audience believed in him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we pray that same thing to be the response to your word this morning. That many that do not know you in this room, they've never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, that that would happen today. And we pray, Lord, that as your word is taught this morning, that you would not allow it to return void, but that every purpose for which it has been given to us would be accomplished in our hearts, both saved and unsaved in this room this morning. We thank you for the supernatural of this Christian life, the supernatural of this living word in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray you give us a supernatural time in your word this morning. And we ask it of you, confident 
because of the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, Jesus warns every single one of us in this room and really every single person in this world to make certain that we do not find ourselves uh, in the condition of dying in our sins. This conversation that Jesus is having here, he's having with the Jewish religious leaders, specifically with the Pharisees. And, they, uh, and it takes place, as we're told there in verse 20, in the court of uh, the women at the temple uh, in Jerusalem, immediately following Jesus' uh, contact with a woman who was caught in adultery. All of this is happening on the day after the great Feast of Tabernacles. And on that morning, Jesus was teaching there very early in the morning in, in Jerusalem, in that courtyard of the women. And as he was teaching, he was interrupted by the Jewish scribes and Pharisees who produced a woman that they had caught just minutes before in the very act of adultery. They cast her down at Jesus' feet, interrupting the Bible study, and they demanded his opinion on what ought to be done with her and declared to him that the law of Moses stated that she ought to be stoned to death for her adultery. And Jesus then, as we saw last week, proceeded to uh, com commend them for their understanding of the scriptures, but then also to expose each and every one of them as completely unfit to cast the first stone against uh, her as a witness based upon uh, the same law of Moses and it caused them from the oldest to the youngest to quietly and I think shamefully uh, depart from that public setting of, uh, of standing before Jesus as he's teaching this large group of people about the things of God. And then is in response to the woman's recognition of him as Lord, Jesus extended forgiveness to the woman caught in adultery and coupled with that forgiveness a command to now begin to live a holy life. Well, all of these events that occurred are being watched and uh, listened to by a very, very uh, wide-eyed group of people. I mean, they probably haven't seen anything like this ever happen in the courtyards of the temple and all their time of going to it, the conduct of the religious leaders, the wonderful handling of, of the situation by Jesus. And so Jesus now having dispatched these religious leaders and having addressed the woman, he now in verse 12 turns his attention to this congregation, this group of God-seekers that are in front of him, and he gives them the great lesson of what they were to take away from these events. And he declares to them, uh, we're told there in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the translation of that is he declares to them that he is a forgiving Savior, but he is also a holy Savior. And he expects the same thing of his disciples, of his followers. And so he forgives and he saves, but he saves people not to continue a life of darkness and sin, but he saves people into a life of walking in the light. Now, there were Pharisees who were present 
in that audience of people that were there early in the morning. Jesus began to teach. A congregation kind of gathered around him. There were uh, uh, Jewish Pharisees that were present at the time, and they made themselves a part of the congregation. They were not numbered among the group that brought the woman. So, uh, so they watched all of these events uh, it, it, just as everyone else uh, did. And following Jesus' statement there in verse, uh, verse 12, in terms of what he calls people to and who he is and these things, they openly challenge him about what he said. Because what Jesus has done there in verse 12 is not only declare that he calls people into a life of light and a, and a life of holiness, but they recognized in his statement that he was declaring himself to be the Messiah. When, I mean, who else but the Messiah, as is described in the Old Testament, could come and say, I'm the light of the world. If I ever showed up to you and, and said, just in and of myself, independent of God, you're looking at the light of the world, then thankfully we've built a lot of exits in this room and you ought to run for them. Then he goes on and he talks about uh, having the ability to give people uh, the ability and the power not to walk any longer in darkness, but to walk in light. I have no power to do that. I mean, these are the claims of someone who is very unique, and they recognized he's de declaring himself openly to be the Messiah that was promised in, in the Old Testament. And in this statement... Uh, of Jesus, they recognize that he's declaring himself to be that, that this wasn't the description of just a mere man. And they begin to object to his claims uh, immediately. And you notice his, their first objection there in verse 13. Basically, they dismiss his claim to be the Messiah, declaring that they couldn't possibly believe in him as the Messiah based upon one witness based upon his own witness. We can't believe you to be the Messiah simply because you say that you are the Messiah. The law of Moses required in a capital case, talking about a legal proceeding, that if there was a charge brought against a man or woman in which the potential was for them to be convicted of a capital crime and executed, the law of Moses required that there be at least two witnesses to that crime. No one could be put to death on the basis of he said, she said, or one person's word against another person's word. But that requirement of the law of Moses, the law of God, was for a legal proceeding. But what the Jewish religious leaders did over time is they took it from that, and unbiblically so, they took it from the strictness of, it, of that context in the Old Testament, and then they applied it to life in general. And, and so here they, they take it beyond the courtroom and they declare that no fact anywhere in life can be established apart from at least two witnesses. And so their excuse here for not believing Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and to be the Son of God is that he lacks a second witness to those claims. And so what they have done, and sometimes we read it, we don't see it right on the surface, but what they've done is they've begun an interrogation of him. They have turned this now into a legal proceeding. And Jesus recognizes that, and they recognize it. They're trying now to trap him, to examine, cross-examine, all this kind of, uh, of things. And they are implying in their challenge against Jesus that if he would simply supply a second credible witness, 
then they would happily put their faith in him and become one of his followers. So that's what they're communicating. Now Jesus' response, beginning there in verse 14, is uh, very, very beautiful, of course. He declares that given his uh, unique qualifications, in the light of where he has come from, heaven, and in light of where he is one day going to return, heaven, in light of the one that he has come from heaven, that his witness alone ought to be enough. Sure, God's law required two witnesses when the witnesses were merely human, <laughs> merely flesh and blood. But this was a witness of God himself, God the Son. And so the witness ought to have been witness enough. The problem that Jesus has is who can he bring to them as a witness of the fact that he is the Messiah and he has come from heaven? What human being on the face of the planet at that moment in time could he bring and say, here is an eyewitness that I have come from heaven? None of them have been to heaven. So they're asking something that's impossible of him in the, in the way that they're demanding it uh, of him. And so then in his grace... Jesus there, beginning in verse 16, supplies them with a second witness to his claims to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God, and uh, thus divine. And he supplies them with the greatest witness of all, none other than God the Father himself. And he declares that God the Father was a witness to the truthfulness of his claims. How so? First of all, through the testimony of his word. God had declared through the Old Testament scriptures, that when the Messiah came on the scene, he would declare himself to be the Messiah. He would declare himself also to be divine. He would declare himself to be the Son of God. The verses that claimed that spoke of the Messiah coming and being divine. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. When he comes into the world. He's going to claim to be God. So don't be surprised when he does. Because he is. He is Emmanuel. God with us, God in human flesh. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah had prophesied concerning the Messiah, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And then here it is. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Old Testament scriptures, and in fact those two very same scriptures, declared that when the Messiah comes, he will not only be divine, but he will be the Son of God, which is essentially the same thing, different only by a small degree. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. When the Messiah comes, he will be the Son of God. Then again in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In Psalm chapter 2, which speaks of the coming of the Messiah, God declared there through David that the Messiah would be none other than the Son of God. 
He describes the anointed that is to come, the Messiah that is to come, and says of him, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Kiss the, uh, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their faith in Him. And so God the Father bore witness to Him through the Old Testament Scriptures. But God the Father also bore witness to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims through all of the miracles that he performed through uh, Jesus, which is one of the reasons why the miracles of Jesus are called signs and wonders. When Jesus spoke the truth that he spoke, if heaven wanted to distance itself, if God the Father wanted to distance himself from this Jesus who was claiming to represent him, all he had to do was just pull back and not allow any miracles to be done by Jesus. But the Father performed miracle after miracle after miracle as a testimony to the truthfulness of the things that Jesus was teaching. And these great miracles that were done are oftentimes called in the Scriptures signs and wonders. And they're called that for a reason. Peter declared on the day of Pentecost when he preached to that great crowd in Jerusalem. And he said, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So what is a wonder? A wonder is something that gets our attention. It's something supernatural that happens that, you know, alerts us that this is not something that's the humdrum of life, something that's just happening every day that, uh, that you know, we would just look at and, and say it's just like everything else and go on about our business. A, mere, a wonder is something that makes you wonder. It's something that stops you and forces you to stop and to think. What is a sign? A sign is something that we put on roadways all around the United States, don't we? All you have to do is to travel someplace else in the world where they don't believe in signs and you'll be thankful for signs. Good signage is wonderful. And good spiritual signage is even better. And so what is a sign? It is something that we put along our roadways in order that people can know that, number one, they are on the right road and that they are on the road that ends, it uh, brings the journey to its proper conclusion. 
And so what these signs were that Jesus was doing, these miracles, were a testimony to the people that this is the Messiah, that this one, this teaching that He is teaching you, the things that He is saying, if you listen to that teaching, if you obey that teaching, you're on the right path to heaven and you will have a very happy ending to your journey. You will get to your destination. You will get to heaven. And so that's what the signs and wonders were intended to accomplish and, and, uh, and to produce in people, that they would come to their proper conclusion concerning Jesus, that He is the promised Messiah, that He is the very Son of God. Now notice in verses 19 and 20, their second objection uh, to Jesus' claim to be uh, the Messiah. It, it, they, it, in verse 19, really they scornfully dismiss all that He has just said to them, and they demand that Jesus physically produce his father before them as a witness. So they, they say to him, where is your father? Produce him as a witness. We have no access to your witness. We have no access to the voice of God. And Jesus then responds, in the remainder of verse 19, and in essence declares that that is precisely the problem. They could not know his father because of their rejection of him. Now here's the important thing to walk away from related to all of this. These guys are not honest seekers like the, the rest of the congregation. They, they are not willing to go where the evidence that Jesus gives them leads. They are playing games with Jesus. They are trying to give an impression, Jesus certainly isn't fooled by it, but they're trying to give the impression to all of those people that are gathered that if Jesus would just supply them with enough proof, with enough evidence that they would gladly become his followers, but the fact of the matter is, no matter what evidence or proof that Jesus provided for them, they were determined not to follow him and not to believe in him. There was nothing Jesus could have done or said that would have convinced them. Uh, there was already a mountain of evidence for them, uh, if, if, uh, for the, the willing heart, the honest heart. And so they're just playing games here, just playing religious, legal, mind, word games. And so Jesus gives them, and anyone else who is dishonest about the evidence that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures have given us for putting our faith in Jesus. He gives that them and every kind of person just like them through human history a very strong, black and white, straightforward, clear, fearsome warning. And he warns them in verse 21, I'm going away and you'll seek me. And you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. And again, verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you'll die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The point that Jesus is making is, and saying to them is, I am going to return to heaven. And one day you will die in your sins. And when you die in your sins then you'll want to listen to me. Then you'll want to believe the things that I have said. 
but it will be too late to do it at that point in time. Heaven will be forever closed to you. And there is one really big thing, Jesus is saying, that every single one of us in this room and every single one of us in this world must make sure never happens to us, and that is we must never die in our sins. Whatever this is, it's such a big deal and, and such a great danger that Jesus repeats the warning three times in, in these handful of verses. He repeats, speaks of it once in verse 21. He speaks of it twice in verse 24. Anytime Jesus says something once, I am, he's got my attention. If he says something three times in a cluster, I mean he's got my full attention. This is serious to him. What is sin? Our English word sin comes from a Greek word, uh, harmatia. And harmatia means to miss the mark. So it come, it's an old English word. And you can picture in your mind, uh, I don't know, they used to, when I was in junior high school, way back when, we used to uh, have, during a part of the year, we used to learn archery. Um, I, do they still do that? In, no. Okay. Another testimony to how things have changed. You wouldn't arm a group of junior hires today. I haven't played all those video games and what with a bows and arrows. So, but we used to do that, and I got into archery for a little while. So you picture, let's, let's make it the English countryside, shall we? And uh, beautiful and all, and you've got this big, you know, pile of hay and they've got the target on it with the, the different circles getting tighter and tighter to the bullseye. And here you have the archer, he takes his arrow, he takes his bow, and he aims for the bullseye. And when he lets that arrow go, if that arrow hits the bullseye, what is it? It's a bullseye. If he shoots that arrow and he misses the bullseye, he sinned. He's missed the bullseye. And it doesn't matter how hard he tried or how hard he didn't try. Even if he tries as hard as he can to hit the bullseye and he misses the bullseye, he sinned, he harmatied. So that's what sin is. It is to miss the mark. And what is the bullseye uh, that each one of us, the Bible says, has missed? The bullseye that we've missed is the standard of God's Word. His commandments in the Bible. His, his definitions of, of right and wrong. And the Bible declares that each one of us is guilty of sin. Each one of us has been less than perfect. Each one of us has broken God's laws. The Bible declares, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. Not even one. The Bible also teaches that there is a penalty that has to be paid for our sin. But I think that maybe crime has become so rampant around us that we just get used to crime being committed and hardly a penalty for it and all. That's not the way God works in His universe. Do you realize this universe is not man's universe? This is God's universe. We're just doing our little trip here right now. He's going to clean it up in due time. 
This world is not man's world. I don't care what title man has. I don't care what sense of self-importance he has. This world does not belong to him. It was commended to us as a stewardship to tend it by God in, in Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't give it over to us to do whatever we wanted with it by our own definitions. This world belongs to God. This is his, this is his world. And just as there are penalties for breaking the law in any nation, there's a penalty in this universe for breaking God's laws. And just as those who break man's laws are punished for their crimes, so too there's a punishment for those who break God's laws. Because God is perfectly holy and He is perfectly judged, just every violation of His law, every sin, must be punished. And if he did not punish those who broke his laws, if he just kind of casually overlooked them and, and just casually tolerated sin, then he wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be just. You wouldn't want to live in a city. You wouldn't want to live in a nation which, number one, didn't have laws and, number two, didn't enforce those laws. And so it is in the universe God has laws, and He takes His laws seriously, and He enforces His laws. And He couldn't be just, and He couldn't be holy, and He couldn't be loving if He didn't. Sin has already ruined the world. God will not allow it to ruin heaven. The penalty of our sin, the Bible says, is death. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's what my sin deserves. That's what your sin deserves. My sin deserves a life sentence, an eternal sentence. It deserves an eternal judgment. As Jesus describes it here, an eternal separation from him and from the Father. I don't argue with it. I rejoice in it. I don't want to die in my sin, and I won't because I've put my faith in Christ. But I don't have any problem with the fact that heaven is so pure and so perfect and so holy that unforgiven sin disqualifies me for being there. That God will not allow me to bring it into that environment. In eternity, there are only two destinations for man. Heaven, where Jesus is, and then hell, which is a place of eternal torment. But I think that it's very, very important to understand that God never created hell uh, for man. The Bible says he created it for the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion against God, but if a person is so determined to reject Jesus as their Savior and align themselves with sin, they want to live, determined to live in rebellion to God in this life and then carry it into the life of, to, to come, then heaven isn't the place for them. But there's only one place. It leaves hell. God never sends anyone to hell, but he does cons- confirm our 
reservations that we make for either heaven or hell in the course of this life. Very often people say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. The response to that is, please read the Bible. (laughs) He doesn't send anyone to hell. He simply confirms our reservations. And the big question is that, that should be asked is, how could a person be so rebellious and so stupid as to end up in hell when God has put the sacrifice of His very Son between every sinner in hell and you have to walk right over the top of them to end up in that place? Well, how does a person die in their sins? To die in our sins is to die without the forgiveness of our sins. That's what it means. Is to, die, to die in my sins is to die in my sinful state without forgiveness for that sin. And so that raises the question of how do we avoid this dying in our sins? Verse 24 is so simple. Believe in Jesus. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Here it is. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And of course the idea is if they would believe in him, they would not die in their sins. To avoid dying in my sins, I simply need to put my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. To accept him as the heaven-sent Savior for the forgiveness of my sins. To confess my sin to him and say, yes, I am a sinner. I've broken God's laws for as long as I can remember. And yes, I believe that separated me from a relationship with God. But yes, I also believe that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the price for my sin and to provide forgiveness for me for my sin. And I believe that Jesus is the promised Savior of the world. And I believe that he not only died on that cross, but he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I I turn from my own self-will, I turn from my sin, and I now give my life to God for him to use now for his glory and his purposes, all of this life and then all of the life to come. And when a person does that, And that can happen in an instant in time in a human heart. That's a prayer that can be prayed in less than 60 seconds. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit comes into that person's life and they're born again now by the Holy Spirit and they have the forgiveness of sins. That's it. That's how easy it is. And the reason it's so easy to have our sins forgiven is because Jesus has paid a terrible price, much of which we've sung about even this morning in worship, to make salvation and forgiveness to us a free gift. I think it's also important to recognize that when Jesus speaks these things, this warning against dying in our sins, he speaks it to a religious crowd. He speaks it to off the graph religious people who have not put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And so he warns them. And so the warning for us, I am convinced, and I would ask anyone 
to disprove me. It doesn't mean I can't be disproved. I just would need considerable, uh, some evidence for it. I am convinced when you look at the six billion people on the face of planet Earth that the overwhelming majority of them that are on their way to this judgment, to this hell, are on their way on a road that is religious. You talk about the hundreds of millions, even the billions of people that are spoken of in different religious systems that do not look at... speak of this way to be saved, the the salvation that God has provided. I mean, the people that are on that path to judgment compared to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll people on the other path, I think it's like a a river versus a trickle. So the warning's important. Am I born again? Have I put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins? Now let me warn us here. Because Jesus warns us. Jesus who is able to forgive and to save. This is the Jesus of the Bible, not uh, as he he warns here. And one of the beautiful things that Jesus does there in, in verse 24 is he describes himself as the Messiah, which is what they're challenging. He describes himself as the Son of God, which they're disputing. He describes himself as the vine, which they are disputing. And what Jesus is basically communicating there in verse 24 is that that is the only Jesus that can save. It is only the Jesus of the Bible that can save a man or woman. The Jesus of our own imaginations, the Jesus of our own defining, our own making him up into whatever we want to make him into. Mr. Potato Head, we put the mouth where we want and the ears where we want and we just fashion him however we want. That Jesus won't save. It's only the Jesus of the Bible that saves. And you notice there... In verse 24, when Jesus said, For if you do not believe that I am He, that word He, you notice it is in italics in your Bible. And the reason that it's in italics is because it does not exist in the original text. It was added by the translators in an attempt to make the passage clear. Anytime you see an italicized word in your Bible, that's not there It's added by the translators to help us understand the passage. Sometimes it is very helpful, sometimes it isn't. Here, it isn't. It would have been better to leave the original alone, and thus it would read, Therefore I said to you that if you die in your sins, that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And I am is the name of of God. When God met with Moses at the burning bush in the Old Testament, there in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses said, listen, I'll go and I'll talk to these people and I'll deliver your message and I'll deliver it to Pharaoh, but you've got to tell me your name. I got, they're going to ask who sent me and you're going to need to tell me. And God said to Moses, I'll give you my name. My name is I Am. I am who I am. I am, it means the self-existent one. It's the one who inhabits the past, the present, the future, all at once because there's no time for him. He is eternal. 
He's in a category of, of one. So when Jesus declares himself to be I am, they would have recognized he is clearly ascribing deity to himself, that he is God. I'll never forget to my shame. I only tell you, uh, I don't tell you the most shameful stories. But I remember I was right out of high school and I had a little studio apartment in Napa, California. And, and it was 70 bucks a month. And uh, it was a lot of money when you're working at a car wash. And uh, I remember the bed came out of the wall. It's funny, you see sometimes the old movies. You put it back up into the wall and it was a living room. It was fabulous. I remember I was right out of high school and I had read this book and there was this guy in it and all. And, and uh, it was a true story about this man. And, and he would sign his letters that he would write. He'd write his letter and then he would write, I am, and then his name. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Kind of a cool way to end a letter. So I was heading out and I had a friend that was coming over to my house, over to the apartment a little bit later and stuff. I'm heading over here and so I am Damien Kyle. I'm, I am. This is the guy that wrote the letter, you know. The friend that was coming over was a Christian. And he said, do you realize what I am is? Now I have the foggiest idea, but I thought it sounded pretty good. He said, I am is the name of God in the Bible. So, well, I may be conceited to some degree, it's whatever, it's right out of high school and everything, but I, I'll never do that again. I never did. So it's universally recognized. So Jesus is declaring himself to be divine, to be the Son of God and to be God the Son. And Jesus is declaring that one must believe that he is divine, that he is God in human flesh in order to be forgiven of our sins. Now, don't think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here. This is very important. Someone might ask, isn't it enough that I believe Jesus to be a good person? Can't I just believe that he's a great teacher, that he's a great moral example? And the answer from Jesus' own mouth here is no, because if that is all that he was, then your sin problem would remain unresolved. Because if one is merely a good person and a good teacher and a great moral example, that person isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus is divine, he is also sinless, and it is the sinlessness of Jesus that is essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot be the Savior of sinners. He would need a Savior himself. A drowning person cannot save drowning people. It was his sinlessness that uniquely qualified Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins and to provide the forgiveness of our sins to be the lamb that is without spot and without blemish as Peter writes in his first epistle some people don't like Jesus' claim to deity they reject him on that basis a lot of people do I'll accept him as a great man, I'll accept him as a great teacher, I'll accept him as a great moral example, but his claims to be the Son of God and thus to be divine, I cannot accept that. I reject him on the basis of that. But if you take that away, you are left with a Savior 
who cannot save. That's a big problem. You've heard the old saying, that dog, that dog won't hunt. That Savior won't save. The Savior that we want to come up with that diminishes Jesus from being the Savior that He was and is described in the Scriptures, that is a Savior. If we move from that, that Savior that we come up with, it can't save. It is only through His incarnation into this world, through His birth as a kinsman redeemer, and is the sinlessness of His deity that has uniquely qualified Him to provide mankind with salvation. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, only the Son could do it, sat down at the right hand uh, of the majesty on high. And you notice, finally, in verses 25 through 30, the two responses. Verses 25 through 29, just more word games and hypocrisy from the Jewish religious leaders. Who are you? They didn't like the first answer. So, Jesus, we're going to give you a chance to tell us that you're something different from what you are, but something that's palatable for us. And Jesus doesn't budge from his definition of himself. And then notice the second response there in verse 30. We're told that many others put their faith in Jesus. On the basis of what? On the basis of the same truth that you've heard this morning. On the basis of the same truth from the mouth of Jesus that you have heard this morning. All of it made perfect sense to that audience. Now how about you? How about you? Jesus warns us, do not die in your sins. It is the witness of the Father and the Son to every one of us in this room. Do not die in your sins. Instead, put your faith and your trust in Jesus, the fullness of who Jesus was and is, for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation. And do it today. Death comes quickly on planet Earth. It comes very quickly. And very, very often it comes completely unexpectedly. And thus it's important to join with this multitude in verse 30 who put their faith in Jesus at their first opportunity. You need to do that too.
There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer. So you can identify them easily up, easily up here. So you don't think all the other riffraff is up here for prayer. Just teasing. And I have a badge on that says prayer. So you can identify them as someone that can help you. To pray with you. To begin that relationship with Jesus today. And they will then give you a Bible and give you some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord today. If you need prayer for anything this morning, of course these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. I close with Jesus' threefold warning in this passage. Because I want, to be, I want everyone to be saved. I want to be innocent of the blood of all men. Do not die in your sins. There is no reason for it to happen. Because God has provided us a Savior. Let's stand together and we'll pray.